Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. And so tonight, we're going to do an introduction, and really just verse 1, our introduction to the book of James. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. Father, we thank you for this amazing book, and we pray that as we embark on a journey to go through it, every chapter and every verse. Lord, would you give our hearts understanding? Would you give our minds the meaning? Would you help us to grow and to learn and to glean from the power of your word as we study it together? Holy Spirit, speak. Encourage your church. Make us alive, Lord, in you. And so we ask that you would speak to us in a special way for each of us, that we would take something new from our time in this book. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Why do you think James would be such a difficult book to identify its author? The answer is actually fairly simple, because when you read the New Testament, you're going to find that there are actually three James that are mentioned in the New Testament. And one of them is an apostle, that's the son of Alphaeus. There's also James, the son of Zebedee, and there's James, the half-brother of Jesus. And so for centuries, really millennia, some have debated if James was actually the author. The Bible actually provides the backdrop for how we know that in fact it is James, the brother of Jesus. And you'll notice here that he in the very first sentence, gives us some secrets to spiritual life. If you want to be something in the kingdom, Jesus said, he who desires among you to be great must become the servant of all. And so how does this James identify himself? As a servant first. The servant of God and therefore the servant of man. He uses the the Greek word here douloi. Now, because James is raised in a Jewish home, a Jewish home at that time would have predominantly spoke in the home Greek. They would have known Hebrew and they may possibly have even learned some Latin. And so in the context of the writing of this letter, James would have been fairly well educated. And so he's going to enlighten our minds with some truths that are very deep, as you might expect from someone who's writing to a church that's filled with Jewish people who had some actual understanding uh, that goes beyond just the farmers that many of them were, the ranchers that many of them were. Paul, as he writes there in Galatians chapter 1, actually identifies James as the Lord's brother. He does so in verse 19. And so It says there, and then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter. 
and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except for James, the Lord's brother. And now concerning the things which I write to you, I indeed before God do not lie. And so there are three basic views of the authorship of this book. Two of them actually come from the Catholic Church. And while this is not an attempt to bash the Catholic Church, it should be noted that both of the views that are espoused by the Catholic Church are false for the primarily same reason. Notice that it appears that the brethren of the Lord Jesus were, as far as the gospel is concerned, actually his brother. In order to make it so that Mary could be perpetually a virgin, in this particular first view, the Hieromanian view, in that particular view, in order that you have Mary not ever having other children, these have to be cousins. They can't be brothers. And the problem with that is that that's completely false because the Bible actually clearly uses the term brother uh, for those that are in the household with James. Um, supposedly, according to that view, they were the sons of Alphaeus and Mary, the sister of Mary, the Lord's mother. And so in order to, to keep this charade that Mary was perpetually a virgin, you have to attribute the brothers and sisters, by the way, that the Gospels declare that Jesus has, to be really his cousins. The second one, the Epiphanian view, um, is similar, that these brethren were actually sons by Joseph from a previous marriage. In other words, in essence, Joseph had a second wife. And that's where the sons came from. Again, it has no historical proof, there's no record of that, and it plainly disregards what the Bible actually says. So what does the Bible say, which is the Helvidian view? Comes Each one of these names is the person who actually framed it in the first century during the very beginnings of the church. And so we read in Matthew chapter 1, verse 24, And then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife. And he did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and they called his name Jesus. And so the inference there is that Joseph and Mary actually did have intimate relations. It was after she had brought home the, brought the firstborn son, which was Jesus. And so it clearly makes the case that there definitely was not a problem with Mary having other children. And it also uses this word that's in English translated until or till, and it literally means it's a way for us to say not till then or afterward. And so it appears that what is going on here is the gospel author is saying Jesus was the firstborn of many much like the same exact word is used in the book of Colossians for the firstborn of all the creation, the prototokos. That's the Greek word that's used there um, for this first one. It's never, ever used of only one. It's used of the first of many. And so it paints this picture that 
Jesus actually has some brothers and sisters. And of course, the Gospels agree with this. Mark chapter 6, Matthew chapter 13. And not to belabor this, but it is important because there is an awful lot of false doctrine that surrounds who Mary is. Mary was a sinner in need of a savior. And she needed Jesus as much as anybody else on this planet. She was in no way, shape, or form perpetually a virgin, nor was she sinless herself, as is purported by some. And if you put her as the co-redemptrix, if you make her equivalent, in essence, in the salvation experience to Jesus, then you demean the role of Jesus as Savior. And so the reason that we need to recognize that James is actually a half-brother born to Mary and Joseph, uh, what we would call the normal way, the family circle there in Nazareth was actually made up of five brothers. They're named for us. Jesus, James, Joseph, Judas, Simon, and notice it says actually some sisters. Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Is this not the carpenter? So he's being interrogated. Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And so they were offended at him. Actually, the fact that Jesus had brothers and sisters was a bone of contention for the Pharisees. And so the Pharisees actually provide some of the information that let us know that James is actually the half-brother of Jesus, lived in the same family. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about it. Imagine for a second. You know, we don't get to pick our relatives, right? You don't get to pick your family. You're born into it. Can you imagine being born into the family of the Messiah? Think about it for a second. Now, we know that Jesus was in all ways. The book of Hebrews testifies this fact, tempted as we are and yet without sin. So Jesus went through all the same things that little boys went through. Jesus probably got involved into rock fights, but he miraculously didn't ever hit anybody. Um, you know, he probably carved on sticks, but he didn't make weapons. We don't know. Jesus was a human child, and he had human brothers and sisters. And, and, you know, there they are in the same household. But for some reason, Jesus always has the right answer. Jesus never does anything wrong. He's that one kid in the family, Jesus is, that the rest of the kids can't stand. Why? He never gets in trouble. Because Jesus never sinned. So in his whole life, here's poor James in the same family with Jesus. James is not perfect in all of his ways, and Jesus is perfect in all of his ways. And so you might think on it for a while why James might have had a little tough time recognizing initially Jesus as Messiah. There was probably a little bit of tension between the two of them, and probably the rest of the kids as well. So it makes the human story of the book of James so wonderful, because this is a guy that actually grew up in the same household as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He would have seen Jesus from childhood all the way until he left home and began this itinerant preaching ministry in the region of Galilee. What does the Bible actually say about James? And interestingly, there are quite a few things about James contained in our Bibles. 
Just for reference, Jewish boys generally during that time, at around the age of six, began their actual schooling. So they would have primarily a spiritual education. They were taught to read. They were taught to write. And that was with exactly kind of how school started here in America, whether you want to think on it or not or remember it or not. Uh, Most schools here in America during the founding had exactly one book in them initially, and that was a Bible. Uh, The same was true for the Jewish people. If they had anything written whatsoever, it would have been the Torah, the first five books, the Pentateuch, the books that Moses wrote. Chances are they didn't actually have that, but they would have some renditions of a few verses, and they would share those things often by memory because people memorized Scripture. It was considered truth, just as we should consider our Bibles true. So the Jewish people considered the word of God, especially the first five books, the Torah, truth. And so here's this Jewish boy at age six that begins to get a spiritual education. Can you imagine when he gets to the messianic passages of scripture that are contained in the Torah? Because there are some. The seed of the woman. Can you imagine the story that Mary and Joseph are telling about how, well, we don't know what happened, but, you know, your mom and I, there was nothing going on, and she ended up pregnant, and she talked to an angel. That's in the book of Genesis in chapter 3. So here comes James. He's getting his biblical education, so to speak. They come to Genesis chapter 3, this this seed of the woman, this prophecy. Hmm, it's him. Can't believe it. The Messiah lives in our house. There might have been a little animosity going on. Or by the time you get to chapter 49, the Shiloh who is to come, this peace. And so... They're in their home all the time while they're getting this education in the Torah. These passages keep coming up. There'll be a prophet like me, but greater, Moses said. Jesus comes along. Mysteriously, he never sins. The rest of the boys are in trouble. Not Jesus. Every time somebody needs something... Miraculously, Jesus is around. He kind of has this way of just appearing and doing things that other people can't do. We don't know when Jesus started doing miracles. We only have recorded his ministry in Galilee. But he was always God. Can you imagine the poor kid in the neighborhood who didn't have food? You can pretty much imagine that Jesus just all of a sudden is going, here. Got out a loaf of bread or something, you know. It would have been pretty awesome to live in the house with Jesus, don't you think? And here they're working to study Aramaic and Greek and Latin, and Jesus is just ripping off sentences in every language. It's like, now this is not fair. Anybody else got one of those in your family? You know, the one academic in the midst of the regular people? That was probably probably Jesus. He's sitting down, he's like, you know, differential equations on the back of his hand with a piece of charcoal, you know, who knows, you know. He got awesome. So initially, James rejected the Lord's messianic claims. 
He's like, no, nah, this has been bad enough growing up with you, dude. I'm not letting you be the Messiah. And I'm taking a little artistic license with the scripture here, but it really is true that James didn't initially believe Jesus was Messiah. No doubt he had some hostility towards his own neighbors for the way Jesus was treated periodically. You can see that there in Luke 4. No doubt James had to deal with the rumors. Remember, Jesus is called all kinds of things. Once he starts proclaiming who he actually is, James is still his brother. And so here is this, your brother is running around telling people that he is the son of God. And so the Pharisees come up with the idea, well, he can't be God. That's not possible because we don't think he is. So he must be Beelzebub the Canaanite, the Philistine God that is the Lord of flies, really Satan himself incarnate. Jesus had to deal with all that, and so did James. There were people that thought Jesus was insane. Any of you have that type of thing going on in your family where you've got that one strange, I have an Uncle Gary. Uncle Gary, if you're watching this, I'm sorry for what I'm about to say. But Uncle Gary was kind of that guy, you know? He was the one that came up with the brilliant idea of jumping off of hay barns into piles of tumbleweeds and things like that. Just there was, there was something definitely not quite right about that. But to Gary, it made sense. That's what people are saying about Jesus. It's like, he's got Messiah complex. He's like, he's not all there, Okay. And so the Lord is hanging out with his family, and they're all like, okay, well, he says he's Messiah, but I mean, really? And so as time passed, you can almost imagine that hostility kind of grew in the family. It's like, dude, every place you go, we end up, our family gets in trouble for what you say. So there's probably some of that going on. It wasn't easy. James needed some convincing. John says that neither he nor his brethren believed him. There in John chapter 7, verse 5. And I think it may well be that James was kind of the, the ringleader. We're not quite sure if he's the older brother, but it appears that James may be the older brother in the bunch. And so... You might remember that the Lord Jesus committed the care of his mother to whom? To John. Not James, not Joseph, not Simon, to John. They're all kind of going, what's up with that? Why is that going on? So there's a little bit of rejection probably. And it wouldn't be until the resurrection that that James comes around and Paul records there in 1 Corinthians 15 that he was seen by James. Can you imagine? After everything he'd been through growing up in the same house, going through all the stuff that was happening in their home, everything that James had to put up with, and then all of a sudden, your brother tells John, not a family member, to take care of your mom, 
because he's going home to his father. And then he shows up. You think maybe in, in his heart, James, all of a sudden, the truth just flooded in? It's like, oh my goodness. I've been wrongfully thinking of my brother. He actually is who he says he is. He's, there, that would be irrefutable proof because James knew that his brother was dead. He had heard that transaction at the cross. Evidently, he was nearby. And so here's this man that initially didn't believe, even though he was in the same house. And I want to draw your attention to something. You can go to church your whole life and not know Jesus. Until you see Jesus. Until Jesus reveals himself to you and you see him. You will not come to him. He's got to be real to you. And so Jesus revealed himself even to his brother. So that his brother had all he needed to know to believe. Don't forget that. You know, sometimes we think that automatically by growing up in a Christian home, or automatically, because in some of our cases, and I won't have you raise your hands, but we got forced to go to church, right? So you're going. You live in my house? Because that's the way it was when I was a kid. Dad says so, you do it, or there's a price to pay. And it wasn't a good one. My dad wasn't even a believer, and he made us go to church. So you can go to church and still not believe. You have to seek him who can save, personally. But in that moment, James instantly is transformed. His mind is instantly renewed. He instantly says, it's him. It's the Messiah. You see, sometimes that's really how it happens. And probably some of you can relate to this. You share with people and you share with maybe somebody in your own home. Can I just tell you that the most difficult people in the world to reach with the truth of the gospel are people who know you best? People who know you best. Your family are the hardest people to reach. Why? Because they see you every day. They, they know everything about you. They, they know that you're not always like that. They know those little contradictions in your character. They know the things that you say you believe this, but you do this. They know those things. And so just like we see here in the life of James, living in the house with Jesus and Mary, who, by the way, talked to an angel, so, you know, let's give her some kudos. You can still hear those things see those things, and there can be something in your life that God needs to just hit you in that one spot and it all makes sense. That faith that comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God all of a sudden just turns on. And it's like, man, I need to know Jesus. In Acts chapter 1, 
interesting in the book of Acts. So the book of Acts is the second book written by Dr. Luke. We often call it Luke 2, but it's really the record or the work of the Holy Spirit in the world. And it begins after these 50 days. So Jesus is resurrected. There's 50 days. 40 of them, Jesus is on the earth. And then 10 days after that is Pentecost. The book of Acts starts right there. And so here is Jesus about to ascend to his father. And all these continued in one accord, Acts chapter 1, verse 14. In one accord, in prayer, in supplication, with the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So the very first record that we have of a house church is Jesus' family. The very first church. It's going to go on to become the church in Jerusalem. The church that will take up offerings for other fellowships throughout the region of the Levant. That word is just simply means the rising. It could be the rising sun. It really is kind of a picture of the sun rising in the east. But this area of land that was given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we call it all kinds of things, the promised land, Canaan, the land of the covenant. But it's interesting, as the apostles passed over James as a successor to Judas, it's because God had a plan for James. You see, James was going to have a very unique role because there was another apostle called James. This is where it gets kind of dicey for some people. He's known as James the Lesser. That's the son of Alphaeus. He's actually an apostle. But this James ends up being a pastor teacher. He's a pastor with a pastor's heart. Verse 15, there of Acts chapter 1, and in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. The number of the names was about 120 and said, Men and brethren, scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas. And so they're about to replace Judas. And so they go on, and one of the names that comes up is James, and they just pass right over him. And they literally cast lots, and they come up with Matthias. But James was there when the church was born. And so James is kind of on the ground floor. He's like that one family, those two families, those three families they get together and they start with the home Bible study and all of a sudden it's like, wow, there's too many people in the living room. You know, and then they go out in the backyard and after they're in the backyard, now imagine that the average home in biblical times was less than 12 feet by 12 feet. When you travel with us to Israel, and we specifically when we go to Capernaum, Capernaum, And you look at all these houses that are built, one wall of one house forms the back wall of another house. You look at them, it's like, man, they had how many people in there? Well, we know the size of Jesus' family. There's Mary, Joseph, and at least seven kids because sisters are named. So that means there had to be two. 
there were nine people that lived in the smallest room in your entire house together. So things were pretty tight. So when they had church, it wasn't like you could, well, we're going to go into the living room and the family room and we're going to like spread some chairs out. Didn't happen. No, they often met underneath a tree or they would sit outside with each other. Church was wherever the body of Christ gathered. Church was wherever the body of Christ gathered. Why? Because you guys are the church. The church is people, it's not buildings. The church has never been a place. The church is an organism. It's living, breathing people who call Jesus Lord, gathered together for his purposes and plans. We also find that the Apostle Paul meets with James as well. And so as James is being convinced, there in Galatians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And so there's always this attention to kind of differentiate between these various James uh, that are listed. And so after all of that, by the time we get to the end of the Gospels, by the time we get to Acts chapter 12, we finally, we find these words, tell these things to James and to the brethren. And so evidently, James by this time is now right in the center of what God is doing in Jerusalem. And so when you think about the church, remember that as Jesus records, we finished up in Luke's gospel. Remember, one of the very last things in Luke's gospel is this picture of these, this couple, like could be a husband and wife, but certainly two people who are walking on the road to Emmaus, which is seven, eight miles from Jerusalem. So as they're walking, Jesus walks up to them. Do you remember what they did? Jesus spoke to them while they were on their way. They turned around. Where did they go? They went back to the church in Jerusalem. So God took a ton of time and effort to pour into this mother church. It was like the church. It may have been primarily what you would call the the first mega church. At that time, it may have been maybe a couple hundred people. We don't really know. But we know a couple of times in the book of Acts, there's 120, 150 people that are gathered together in one particular meeting, and they're in Jerusalem. So they're this big, non-denominational, there were no denominations then. The body of Christ wasn't divided up into little cliques and families. There was just believers. And James was the pastor of that church. And to me, I find this fascinating Because that means that everything that church did was as far as church life is concerned was the first time the church did that. First time they tried it. The first time that they got together. Can you imagine the first communion service, people trying to figure out how to do it? You know, every once in a while we do communion, I'll I'll get a couple of emails. It's like, well, you know, you guys use plastic cups. It needs to be silver. 
I'm thinking to myself, how do you give 5,000 people silver cups? It's like, it's not going to work really. I don't know what you do with that on a given service. Can you imagine? He was in the leadership. He was the pastor. And he remained the pastor of that church all the way through the book of Acts. He even presides over this thing called the Jerusalem Council, which is recorded for us beginning in Acts chapter 15. And when the multitude kept silent, they listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them amongst the Gentiles. They had become silent. And James answered, men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take them out of them from a people that were called by his name. And with these words, the prophets agree just as it's written. So here's James expositing scripture to the first church. So he was a Bible guy. James was a Bible teacher. Now admittedly, the New Testament was being authored at that time, so it wasn't available to him. But as far as the scriptures were concerned, which scriptures were they? The Old Testament scriptures. So now James is thinking back on this education he got in Hebrew school how he was taught by his parents. He studies the Torah. He goes, yeah, that was my brother. That's Jesus. How do I know that? Well, because one of the things that they would often do is repeat Psalms one to another. So when Psalm 16 and Psalm 22 comes up, yeah, death will not be able to hold Messiah. And guess what? I saw my brother with my own eyes after he was resurrected. So he was able to preach with conviction because he had seen God do these mighty works himself. One of the things that is troubling to me in our world today is we're cranking out professional pastors. they've, They've gone to school, they've gotten a degree, but they don't love sheep. They're not shepherds. They just like kind of the job and the perks. Shepherds love sheep. James was a shepherd. He was a pastor and a Bible teacher. Those two gifts are not the same. You can be a Bible teacher without being a pastor. But you cannot be a pastor without being a Bible teacher. James was both. When Paul made his last faithful visit to Jerusalem, right before he's arrested, remember Paul is actually arrested in Jerusalem and he's sent to Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea on the coast, the city that's built by Herod, this Roman garrison city, which was a port city at the time. They're excavating actually the harbor that was used during the time that Paul was imprisoned. Actually, the stables and the cells that are just to the east side of that particular artificial harbor that was dug into this little hillside area. Paul was in Jerusalem and arrested from there. And on the following day, verse 18 of Acts 21, Paul went in with us to James And all the elders were present. So you can kind of see how Paul 
is actually going to the church leadership that is overseen by James. And when he had greeted him, he told great, in great, de- great detail the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And so this is the author of this book. Pastor James essentially is born. That's who we see come out of the book of Acts. It was James who was the one who encouraged the church in Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul specifically maintaining some form of of integrity by paying the cost involved in terminating the Nazarite vows that were taken by many of the people that were being converted. So when they took these vows, if you were to break them, it cost you. They didn't have any money. They were going to be persecuted for breaking their Nazarite vows. And so it was James that stands up, look, I was Jewish. I know what this is like. Paul was also Jewish, and they kind of argued back and forth. So a lot of times what we see in the writings of Paul is we see a little bit of Saul still in there, or some of that fire. But James was a lot more compassionate. A lot more tender. It was James that was kind of the mediating factor there. And then finally, Paul agrees with James. He says, you know what, James, you're right. And the next day, the Apostle Paul is beat up. He's outside of the temple. The Romans take him into protective custody. They imprison him in Caesarea. Kind of would have been nice if Pastor Luke had expounded on that a little bit. You kind of wonder if there was a little thing between the two of them or not. You know, why didn't James, you know, just go, hey, let him go? Why didn't they go and see him? We're not told those things. But it might be that the Jerusalem council may have been kind of ready to get rid of Paul. Remember, he was a member of the Pharisees. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. So, you know, it might have been that The Holy Spirit actually spoke to James and said, no, you're going to be better off. Let him go to the Gentiles. Isn't that where Paul went? Paul didn't go to the Jews. He went to the Gentiles. They didn't need two heads. They didn't need two pastors. They didn't need two leaders. They didn't need two shepherds. And so Paul is on his way to Rome. The death of James is actually not recorded in the Bible. There are lots of traditional accounts of kind of how that happened. According to Josephus, Flavius Josephus, Annas, the the high priest that was presiding over the trial of Jesus, is credited with putting him to death, had him stoned, which makes sense because he's the one that also stoned Stephen, responsible for that. It's kind of like his thing. Like if somebody got in his way, especially if they were Jewish, it ended up being very problematic for them. Several hundred years later, Clement of Rome said that there was another thought that someone had once recorded, and that was James was thrown off the, the temple wall. You remember that temple wall is actually where Jesus was taken. That was the high place that he was taken up on. And the devil tempted him on the pinnacle of the temple. So on the south end of the temple mount, where the temple is at its tallest because the canyon is at its deepest, if you get up on top of the walls and you're looking down into the Cadron Valley, it's over 100 feet to the valley floor. 
And that's where, you remember, that the Fuller's Field was there. Most of us think of Fuller like if you're old like me, remember the Fuller, the Fuller Brush Man? You know, you could, you could get like brooms and, you know, brushes and all these. They would come to your house and roll all this stuff out. I remember, I, I don't know why I remember these things. I am a repository for useless knowledge. Just remember that. So here's, here's this fuller. But actually a fuller was what we would call a person who worked at a laundromat. The fuller was actually responsible for taking a club and taking clothes, getting them wet, putting them on a rock, and they would beat them with a club. Well, the Clement of Rome believed that James was beaten with the fuller's club in the fuller's field. But however he died, there's something we do know about him. He was a pastor. James cared about the flock. He was there with the church as it went through. And so he writes to this group of people. And I want you to notice something. When he says to the 12 tribes, at the time James writes, I have no idea where 10 of the 12 tribes are. But James, being a student of the Bible encourages people, God knows exactly where they are. And he made a promise to the 12 tribes, not to the two. He certainly didn't say that 10 are lost. He doesn't agree with Mormon doctrine that, you know, there are 10 tribes that are lost, and actually the Mormons are them, resurrected through the Aztecs, the Mesoamericans. No, he said, I'm writing to all of Israel. And he uses this generic term that would have described all of the Jewish people. I'm writing to every last one of my people. Why? Because he was a pastor. He's writing to every place that they went. They were dispersed by this time. You know, you wouldn't have been able to go into Jerusalem like you used to and find it, you know, almost exclusively a Jewish settlement. It was Roman. It was Greek. It had hints of the Carthaginians by another hundred or so years. You know, sometimes we forget that throughout that region, you, you have all these incredible civilizations, one right after another that came into power and then faded from power. The Medes, the Persians, Babylonians, the Greeks... The Carthaginians would come from North Africa. But James stayed home. James didn't go up to Phoenicia. James didn't wander and see what was over on the other side of the Euphrates. James stayed home and pastored the church in Jerusalem. One of the things that always reminds me to, to think about this in this light. You see, we think about Israel as this tiny little nation that exists wedged between, on the south end, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Jordan on the east, and in the north, Lebanon and Syria. But God sees Israel as a people. James was a pastor of the people the Jewish people. And he would share this incredible book that he writes, talking to them because they were everywhere. They were scattered throughout what we call now today the Levant. But then it, 
included an area that went all the way over to the Euphrates River in modern-day Iraq. And so it's a gigantic area. And here's all the Jewish people that are just scattered out through all these lands that, you know, today we call Syria and Lebanon and Jordan and Israel and Palestine and all these things that are just made-up names. God said, actually, no, that's my land. That's what he wrote to Joel. And those are my people. That's what he wrote to Abraham. And I'm going to give them my land as a perpetual inheritance. And so James writes to all of the people no matter where they were. It's the heart of a pastor. That's what a pastor does. Reaches out to people. To the twelve tribes which are scattered, he says. God hasn't forgotten about you. And neither have I. The modern idea that we have that the Jewish people are you know, scattered and divided and they no longer exist is just foolishness. Because the Bible plainly says that God knows exactly where all 12 tribes are. In fact, the book of Revelation says in the very last days that there will be these evangelists, 144,000 from every single tribe. 12,000 from each. You think God knows where they are? Mm-hmm. And James, being Jewish, says, I, pl- I trust God. I believe what God says about us. We may be scattered, but we're not lost. And so James begins to write from a Jewish perspective, having very solid firsthand knowledge about King Jesus. And so we, we can expect there to be details, very precise teachings. A plethora of subjects that are so important to us today. Anybody struggle with temptation? That's in there. Anybody struggle to have joy in a messed up world? Uh, That's in there. So we're going to see Pastor James at work. Jesus' half-brother, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. The founder, really, of the first evangelical church that's recorded in Scripture as he ministers to his flock through this letter that he writes to the church. It's going to be a great time. Get ready for some exciting things, some challenging things, some wonderful things. But we're going to hear from Pastor James. Amen? Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you for the way this book has ministered to me throughout my walk with you, Lord Jesus. And I would pray that the rest of this church, the world, those that would hear these words as we study, God, they would be challenged and built up and encouraged and placed into your marvelous care as we allow these things that you say about us to become truth to us. And so, Lord, we thank you for James's life. We can't wait to meet him. Lord, I can't wait to talk to him, see him face to face one day. And so, Lord, bless us as we study this amazing book. We give you this entire study, Lord, start to finish. It's dedicated to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.